Hello, everyone. I am Melinda Brianna Epler, founder and CEO of Change Catalyst and author of How to Be an Ally. I'm your host of Leading with Empathy and Allyship. Welcome. Allyship is about learning, showing empathy, and taking action. That process often includes learning, unlearning, and relearning, then building empathy for people with different experiences, and above all, taking consistent action. So each week, we'll learn from somebody new. Please be open to new ways of thinking and understanding. You can learn more about my work and sign up to join us for a live recording at ally.cc. Let's get started. Today, our guest is a friend, a colleague, a former client, and an incredible lifelong advocate, Natalia Villalobos, who is the VP of Inclusion at the New York Times. And we'll be talking today about how we create change in our organizations by empowering people to be change agents. So that'll include understanding the model of change within your organization, partnering with leaders, building communities of practice, and giving people grace throughout the process. Welcome, Natalia. Thanks for having me, Melinda. Yeah. All right. Let's start first by getting to know a bit about you, Natalia. Um, can you share with us a bit about your story, where you grew up, and how you ended up doing the work that you do now? Yeah, thank you for the invitation. So uh, my name is uh, Natalia Villalobos. I've also gone by Natalie Villalobos. So you might find me as both on the internet. As I like to tell people, Natalie felt very much like the girl name and Natalia, which is just my name in Spanish, felt like my woman name. So I had changed my name a few years ago to be representative of that new chapter in my life. I am an 11th generation Californian, and I am very proud uh, of that heritage. And at the same time, I'm the only person in my family who lives in New York. So definitely sure. love uh, spearheading and uh, you know being a bit of a trailblazer in my family, seeking out new lands for big opportunities. And for most of my life, I was in tech. Uh, for over 15 years, I was focused on utilizing my primary life value, which is community, and using that as a method for change in organizations. In the most recent past, that was Google. And at Google, I was leading our gender equality investments and efforts, specifically for women in technology. And I helped build a program called Women Tech Makers. I was also able to partner with an exceptional group of people to launch and build Google's first Black equity brand called the Tech Equity Collective. And most recently, I am at the New York Times as their first vice president of inclusion, strategy, and execution. And, you know, to Melinda's point, if you had to ask me where did it all start, I'd probably tell you about a paper that I wrote when I was in high school. I was in something called the YMCA Youth and Government Program, which is basically teaching high schoolers about the model legislature and court system. And, you know, we got to kind of reenact different roles in the California state government. And I uh, thought I was going to be a high school history teacher, so I picked State Board of Education. And my paper that I wrote when I was 17 was to include diversity, equity, and inclusion classes and workshops uh, within all public schools in the state of California. Oh, wow. So, yes, you can imagine that this is something that's been on my mind for quite some time. So, uh, and that was when I was 17, I'm 39 now, and I believe I'll be doing this work for the rest of my life. Awesome. Awesome. 
I love it. Actually, my I, I'm just thinking back to when it started for me too. Also in high school. Yeah, <laughs> I, <laughs> it was. It was. It may have been. A, maybe. A, a, yeah, I, I definitely wrote wrote papers when I was in high school. I wrote long, dense papers because I was an overachiever and perfectionist, and yeah, all the things. And uh, but but I it was when I uh, created created a sister school in then the Soviet Union. Um, then. Um, that was a that was a big deal at the time, and really changed changed how I view the world in so many different ways. Okay, so you're a change maker and a community builder who has worked to create change in in a number of different organizations in in different ways. So, getting to the topic today, can you share how you think about creating change in different environments? You know, yeah, how do you create yeah. change in different environments? I've been in a number of different environments, and I've would say that, I mean that that could be partnering with nonprofits. It could be working for a large company. Uh, it could be working for an institution that, like the New York Times, it's been around for over 170 years. Yeah. And, you know, when you first enter into an environment, you come with a set of tools, and skill sets, and knowledge. And if you're anything like me, which maybe you're not, you might have a strong bias to action. You might feel an internal need to create change. Some people might come to you with thoughts and feelings and ideas and you're like, ah, I got to solve for this as soon as possible. And that inner drive uh, is really important to listen to, but it's also important to temper because what's so important is to also think about the environment and the type of environment that you're looking to participate and make change in. In some cases, you might be in an environment that is really focused on innovation and sign thinking and accelerating and trial and error and launch and iterate. And, you know, you're really playing in a relatively high risk environment and risk is rewarded. Uh, In other environments, it might be slow. There might be a sense of building greater consensus than what you're used to. It might mean more feedback than less feedback. It might mean lots of decision makers rather than you just being the primary decision maker. And I think what's really important when being a change maker is to assess your landscape, both the one that you've entered and the one around it. So I also like to think of competitors. I like to do landscape analyses when I first joined an organization um, to get a sense of, you know, what is what is the, uh, the, you want to assess the environment in a way that allows you to take in enough knowledge to help you create the right type of strategy. So before you take action, you have to listen, you have to learn, and you have to figure out what is the right set of those tools and skill sets that you need to apply it to the organization rather than just what you think is the best thing, you know, for the situation. So yeah. it's a, a lot of customization, I would say, a lot of adaptation. And what is a good process for, or is there a process for doing? What, what does that look like to, to, to really take that on, to really understand how um, change works in organizations, how the culture works in organizations in order to do that? Yeah, it's a great question. And so, you know, when people will, will often bring up, like, you know, in diversity work or in community work, you know, it is strategic, it is, you know, action focused. But I think at the end of the day, kind of, you know, you might not hear it, but it's healing work. And, you know, that happens in a lot of um, small and big ways. So that's how I would kind of think about it is research with active listening, qualitative and quantitative, be able to then kind of 
diagnose and assess what needs to be done. Then you move into your action plan. And then I think you get into a place of, you know, kind of operationalizing, metabolizing, um, getting it into the system. And then I think you're in a testing phase. It's like, did that work? Was my assumption correct? And what can I then ask people? Is this really working? And then they'll be able to give me feedback. And then I'm going to iterate on it. Yeah. I mean, I've questions within that that I think it's so important that that to linger on what you said too around yeah. healing that this work is a lot about healing I think also identifying the pains so that you can do the healing work and and the, one of the things that I have definitely found is that in in one way or another most of us are walking around with pain and it shows up in ways that can be harmful to ourselves and harmful to each other too. And that, that this this work often when we have when we come up against barriers is because of something that's happened, some kind of pain, trauma that has happened in the past that is emerging in the present in different yeah, it ways. Yeah, it makes me think of do you remember that sweatshirt that we made together years ago? Yeah. Which which <laughs> one was it? Well, I, it was the gray one that I think it said focus on solutions. Focus on solutions. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I think mine's still packed away in my pandemic storage unit. But that sweatshirt is something that I still think about. That one liner, mm-hmm. focus on solutions. Yeah. And I bring that up now because, you know, in our workplaces, in our lives, um, in our communities, you know, whatever it might be. We have a lot of different feelings. We have emotions about things. And oftentimes, you know, um, when there is suffering, pain, historical, systemic, things like that, you know, oftentimes people will come to me with the, this like bundle of emotions and they're just like, can you just take this from me? Yeah. I have these feelings. Can you do something with it? And I think one of the more difficult jobs of someone who is an empathy focused role and isn't an ally is to help both receive, validate, and then help figure out what is the next step? What would you like to have done with that set of feelings, right? And so I do a lot of untangling of the solution that someone would like to have come from an emotion, right? And that takes time. My calling, I think, in a lot of my work, right, I'll be in like some big meetings and I'll have like 30-minute meetings and coffee, is those the moments that I know I'm really making a difference are those 30-minute meetings when someone can bring me something and we can find a gem together, right? We can find a solution together. Right. And, you know, a good example of that is giving people some some options, is listening and saying, okay, would you like for this group of people to come together and express themselves to each other? Let's say like in a town hall, say, you know, folks are experiencing Asian hate and violence. And the Asian community is is feeling a type of way. Okay, we just want a container to get the feelings out, or do we want um, an opportunity to take feelings and express them in a document and give that document to somebody? Okay, is that a, that's another solution? Do we want to maybe write down our thoughts and feelings into talking points for people managers to be able to express why? Or to speak about the experience that Asian uh, people are feeling, right? And then they create more allies. And so I think, you know, when we sit down and we listen to pain, it's not, again, like we're trying to get to action, but I think it works really well when you partner to build a solution. And you can't build a solution 
on your own. I can't build that kind of solution on my own. It needs to be in partnership with. So I think so much of of what I love doing is building that sense of co-creation with everyone that comes my way so that it feels like we're doing that healing, solving work together. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I think that gets into my 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 next question for you. We've already started to talk about it, which is how we move from big ideas, big strategies into execution and um, the individual actions that really are the ones that, that create those cultural shifts. How do we get there? And so, so you, you started to talk about partnership and maybe you could go more into that. What does partnering with look like? What does collaborating with leaders look like in order to create change? One of the things that I think I'm struck by when I think of diversity strategies and sometimes they're set at a company-wide level, right? It's a public commitment, and we're saying something that is maybe multi-year. We're setting a, a vision, and we're saying, you know, these are our values, and this is what we want to accomplish. But this is very broad. This is, this is more generalized of, of an industry. And I think sometimes we think that's enough. We make a statement, and then leaders can interpret that statement, and everyone go to your best. And there it and is. Like, <laughs> And they're just like, well, like, I don't know if that's really going to get us where we need to go, yeah. um, you know, because we're, people need a plan, right? People need to be able to have some accountability. We need to be able to measure things. We need to be able to have quarterly reviews to make sure we're on track, right? And if we, I believe that every leader, you know, stands behind this work differently, and their organizations may be at different maturation levels when it comes to actually uh, doing the work. And that's okay. But we can't just leave it vague and broad, right? We've got to bring it home. And I think how we bring it home is you got to sit down with leaders and you got to say, what's coming up for you? What is a priority for you in this work? And some people might say hiring. Some people might say retention. Some people might say, oh, the culture in my space isn't as welcoming as it might be. And that's a great place to start. Give me a starting point, right? So I think you need both. I think that you need to have the broad company vision, right? And it's kind of like the North Star. And then you need to help people navigate. And one of the, the things that I'm you know, really interested in is the practice of building toolkits and strategies that can scale, right? Because my, you know, Often DEI teams are small teams and you don't want the, the DEI team to be the only team that does it, right? That's not where the responsibility stays and where it lands. Um, the responsibility is really with these different leaders. So I think when you can, you know, sit down with folks, get a sense of a starting point, it also gives you a sense of the diversity of problems they might be looking at. And I think then that's when you can build out playbooks, templates, toolkits, standards, and communicate your strategy, your plan, your vocabulary, the journey to these leaders, and you're imparting them with the method to go forth. And then you work the method with them, right? And that's where you get to be an exceptional partner and kind of that center of excellence. And I think that that's much more scalable. And I, and I think, you know, one thing I, I wanted to mention here is you know, you have the go forth model, you know, like the, I'm going to work the method with you. But again, you don't want that to be so siloed. So I think another great opportunity is when you are 
bringing people onto your approach is to bring them together. As I mentioned, community is super important to me. So how do we bring those leaders together to learn about this work? How do we bring their kind of program managers, the operators to work together to do the work? And how is everyone learning in partnership with each other, right? So it's not just thinking of partnership, me to them, it's to each other. And I think that that means that then I can go on vacation from time to time because there's a great group of people who are actually carrying the work with one another and not just relying on me. And I think that's important for DEI practitioners too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because we need to build our own resilience and, and, and that, that empathy practice means that we're sometimes taking in things that we need to come back out through that resilience, that resilience practice. Yeah. We're working with a tech company. Um, and, uh, and one of the things that they're, that the uh, head of diversity, equity, inclusion is doing is recognizing that each team leader has a different passion. Kind of what you said, each, each team leader has a different passion. And so, Rather than saying, no, that's not your priority right now, is going with that, right? Like, yeah, you have a yes, passion yes. for, you have a passion for bringing more women leaders into senior leadership positions. Excellent. Let's support you and, and bring you um, forward and, and give you the tools and the skills that you need in order to do that effectively. And another one is more focused on diversifying their candidate pools. Um, another one is more focused on building trust that their team has lost because of layoffs or something like that, right? I'm just making this up. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to, no, I'm not saying real, real examples, <laughs> but, but, it, but it, it, right. So, um, so I think that's what you're, you're saying is that when you're working to collaborate um, with, with leaders, it's, it's building these customized approaches and allowing them to lead their own work rather than telling them saying this is our your directive and this is your directive yeah. and also within that creating accountability everybody has has to have some kind of accountability and check-ins and milestones so that you can check in on 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 what's working what's not working and 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 uh change it if needed and and then so just thinking about the communities of practice like bringing people in together would that look like then saying, okay, so this leader is focused on women in leadership, it, you know, bring, advancing more women into leadership positions. And this leader over here is doing the same thing. So we're bringing them together to share. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Is that what you're talking yeah. about? Yeah. I think that that's a, that's a great outcome. That's absolutely right. And, and I think to, to double down on what you were saying, you have to meet leaders where they are, right? I think you can have a vision of where you want them to be. But no, and I, I, we, we talk about this a lot in DEI work. It's a journey, right? Uh-huh. And imagine if you've got like 13 different senior vice presidents. That's 13 different both individual journeys, 13 team journeys, 13 organizational journeys. Yeah. Right? And so meeting them where they are is respecting them and the journey that they will be on. And I think that's another great sign of partnership. Um, so definitely meet them where they are. Your words inspired me to to remember something that I had done with our uh, with our tech organization here at the Times, and you know we have a great set of data. Our HRIS team is exceptional, and you know I was able to partner with with a woman on my team. Her name is Ariel, and leaders of the tech organization, and we were able to look at you know all of the different data 
And there were some key themes. Now, I can't share what those themes are, uh, but what I can say is we created a design sprint workshop. So I've done years of design sprint thinking and workshops at Google. And I was like, okay, how do I take this method, this tool that I already have in my toolbox, and how do I apply it to a new group of people and help them work the problem? And so what we did is we actually, and, and maybe this is something I can share with your audience afterwards, I can find some way to maybe share this out on the web. But I adapted the design sprint thinking model so that our first few slides were the setup. It was, what are we going to do? What do we want to achieve? And here's how we're going to do it together. Got people in a room. There's about 18 of us. And we went through the four or five major themes in terms of what we received for marginalized and underrepresented people within the organization. And what we did then was to, you know, give people a chance to individually write down on post-it notes what they thought the solution was to that. Now, imagine that's 18 people. That's 18 different versions of a solution. And they're all coming from different places across the tech org. Operations, strategy, HR, right? Everyone's coming with their own lens. And I think sometimes when we're all coming with our own lens, depending on, you know, how you're seen in the organization, you might not be heard as much. So it creates yeah. an equal table of caring solutions. And now what we did is um, we then created a set of themes that my team likes to, to work on that comes up a lot in DEI. So hiring, progression, retention, culture, and accessibility. And I put those big five posters around the room and I said, go put your sticky note, uh, your solution note, wherever you think it lies on one of those themes. And everyone had to get up, express their idea, and everyone heard each other. That's very important. Then the next step was, all right, everyone gets three votes. And so we got those little dot stickers uh, that you can get at Staples. And everyone went up and put a sticker on what they thought the most impactful solution was to do in the first year. Then we could kind of collectively see what were we all, if we could be investors, they get like Shark Tank, what were we going to double down on? And that gave people a sense of, of input and creative control over, you know, what did we want to tackle together across all these teams? And then we split each other up into teams and you had to represent one of the top ideas. Again, I love Shark Tank. So uh, basically the, my prompt was, if you had to pitch our CEO, Meredith, on your big idea, and this was like a million dollar buy-in, you know, sell me on it in like a minute or two or less. And then those teams, again, from different walks of life, different backgrounds and experiences, got together and pitched their big idea to the room. And it was amazing. It was hysterical. It was the best. And then, you know, the whole room, you know, was, was laughing and supportive and cheering each other on. And now some of those big ideas have worked themselves into our multi-year strategy to drive diversity for the tech work. So, wow. you know, you're like, tell me about a process. That's one that I thought was really engaging and fun across a very matrix environment that allowed us to get to the creative solution together. Yeah, I love that. And I, I can see how that would work at if you're in different roles within the organization, whether you're an ERG leader, you're a diversity, equity, and inclusion leader, you're a people leader, right? You're, you're a people leader that wants to develop a diversity, equity, and inclusion plan for your team and you want to enroll your team in the process, that would might be a great way to enroll your team in the process. Um, yeah. And uh, and it might also, as a result, kind of filter out some ideas that are maybe loud ideas, but when you actually get down to it, they're 
when you when you pitch it, it falls flat because it's not a robust idea that that people really want to work toward. So yeah, and yeah. yeah, and we got to prioritize those. I think that's another big thing. You know, when we're looking at making change in an organization, right? Is again, it's not like a there's the monolith, there's the mm-hmm. on high, right? Then there's the custom, and then within within each of those organizations, we've got the individual leader vision, right? Meeting meeting folks where they are building processes that will resonate with that group. Um, and then you got to prioritize. What are you going to do first, right? We haven't even, we've just done lots of listening and, and thinking. We haven't even gotten to building that the actual plan. And so again, when making change, you know, I think it's it's a lot of this setup, which takes time, right? You can't skip through some of this right. stuff. And I think that, that that was also important is to, you know, really help get a sense of, all right, these are we got 10 great ideas out of that exercise, but we can only pick three, right? Yeah. We got to keep people focused. And then those three things got to have KPIs or OKRs, pick your pick your frame. And then we're going to work it. We're going to assign some ownership to it, right? And I think that then rubber starts to hit the road, right? Then we get to think about what are the resources we need to accomplish it, people, money, otherwise, whatever. And then you have time to run, right? So all this setup, all, you know, like, Change takes time, both in in actually cycling through it, but then all of getting people together in terms of consensus and decision making. And then, you know, reporting up and out about how well it's going. So this this stuff I love because it's slow progress, but it's meaningful progress. So let me ask you this. In the process of developing a strategy of working to create change within organizations and partnering with leaders to create change and gathering input and feedback and piloting and feedback, all of that. What do you do to enroll the folks? There are, I think, maybe two two that I want to ask you about. One is the leaders that are overwhelmed by diversity, equity, and inclusion. And they're like, I have no idea what to do. Just tell me what to do. (laughs) Yeah. They aren't necessarily saying they don't want to do it. They're just saying, I don't have time. Maybe they're saying, I don't have time to think about it, but you're the expert. Tell me what to do. And then there's also the leaders that are not not focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion and don't want to deal with it at all. What do you do with those two? You know, my first thing that I think about is prioritization. I'm going to go where the energy is. If you have a desire and a drive, I want to meet it. And I'm going to meet it with the best of everything I have. You know, and and I think that you also have to break down DEI a little bit too, right? And I and I and I and I say this, you know, so one, so we'll keep prioritization here, but you gotta create a common ground like a common sense of what are we even saying um and i've been playing been playing with this i'm kind of pitching it to your audience for the first time um and there's more so if you you know want to talk to me on social media please come talk to me about some of these ideas and that is the idea of when we say diversity equity inclusion you know someone might say dei is controversial it's a social justice movement it's um it's shiny investments only when it matters. It's, you know, you know, thoughts and prayers, right? When 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 things happen. 
And does it really need to be integrated into to systems? That's one. The DEI is controversial. I think two is DEI is a is a journey, right? And I kind of already mentioned this. DEI can be a journey for a person, can be a journey for a team, can be a journey for an organization, can be a journey for a company, right? And imagine those are kind of like four different sized things. That's that's heavy just on its own. And then the other one that I've been thinking about next to it is DEI is a discipline. It's academic. It's historical. It is um, something that we can go to school for, but it's, it's, you know, something that is a craft, right? And, you know, I think kind of wrapping all this together is something that I like to say is that, is that DEI and this work is a living narrative. It changes every single day. And that's what's beautiful about it, right? It's, it's a non-stagnant practice of meeting humans, loving humans, and helping people get to a greater sense of, of wholeness and connection to themselves, to an organization, a sense of affinity. It's, it's ongoing. It's ever moving. And I think that can also be challenging, right? So when you're sitting down at the leader and they're like, I'm overwhelmed. And I'm like, tell me, buddy, like, talk to me. I, I, I get you, right? And I got, I got where that might feel overwhelming. And I think that let's just even get to the place of common language. So one of the things that I think is really important is to, to think about how do we create a common set of language, a common set of interventions, a common sense of paths, pathing, and I, I say the word P-A-T-H, path. And I think then you kind of start to organize the chaos. That can be chaos that someone feels in their work environment. It can be chaos that they feel inside because they're grappling, you know, with how this is showing up in the real world with the, you know, the murdering of, of black men, women, and children. It could be, how do I take that feeling that I have and how do I help people within this organization, right? And so you're kind of starting to help soften and shape and guide. And from that place of overwhelm to a place of action, right? right? And empathy is plays a huge role in making that transformation possible. And then I think, you know, as you mentioned, then there's the people that are just like, I just don't get it. And then I'm like, well, I'll get to you later. Eventually, <laughs> eventually I'll break it down for you. But I'm going to start with these Let's get all over. these other wheels in motion first. <laughs> but in the meantime, here's a book, you know, read by my friend Melinda. You know, and I, I think that, you know, I'm not here to, to force your journey. It's mm-hmm. only going to work if you want to greet it. If you want to, you want to come to the journey yourself, you know, for your team, right? So I'll give you resources. Let me know what you think. It's a soft sell, right? Get people curious. Being curious in this work is a huge light bulb moment for people. You know, I think if you can suspend judgment, then you can get to a place of curiosity. And that's when the good stuff really starts to happen. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, maybe part of that is understanding what might be holding them back. Maybe it's a belief. Maybe it's a um, pain. <laughs> Going back to that, yeah. maybe it's um, yeah, maybe it's something else. So maybe they're feeling pressure from some other end and just aren't able to concentrate on it. There could be so many. There's so many different reasons why why there is that perceived wall that may have some holes in it if you 
poke with your curiosity enough. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think that, you know, there's historically when I've talked to folks, there's fear, right? Um, right. Fear that you're going to get wrong, fear that you're going to mispronoun someone, fear that you're going to walk into a room and not know the latest, you know, news that might be affecting someone. And so oftentimes people, leaders and non-leaders will, you know, feel like I'm just going to sit here and I'm just going to be silent and my presence is enough. When in reality, you know, the folks who are feeling the most impacted need you to say something. Mm. And I think when I think of DEI, it's a learning environment, right? When we're thinking about change in an organization, what doesn't work is judging each other and saying, oh, Um, you're only there and oh, I'm here and we're making this comparative assessment because again, we're, we're always looking at data, right? We're always looking at each other. If we can create a learning environment that is a place of curiosity, then there isn't necessarily a wrong or a right. It's just we're figuring it out. Yeah. And I think that that's a really important place to be in and, and a place to foster with people so that the fear can drop and, you know, action can can move forward. And I think one of the greatest tools for making that happen is grace. And I think when grace was first introduced to me, you know, or, or the first time I really heard it, right, it was, it was maybe you go to church and you hear the word grace. Right. And if that resonates with you, that's great. You know, that's a good, def- good, good place to start. I hear it in hymns. I think grace came to me through therapy and, and the work that I've, you know, personally been doing on my own journey. And it's this place of offering, you know, I think we don't have to wait for grace to be bestowed on us. We can bestow grace to ourselves. So when you mispronounce someone or when, you're, you know, not showing up the way that you might want to. You can give yourself grace. And it's a place of easefulness. It's a place of non-judgment. It's a place of not inaction, but it's a place of saying, you know, I may not get it right, but I'll try again. And that, to your point, resilience, that's, you know, is really important because as we talk about this work, you know, it's it's not going to be finished in our lifetime. It will only be moved forward. And if we always stay paralyzed in the face of fear, we never offer ourselves grace, then our leadership roles may fall flat in, in terms of what they can really accomplish. And so I think that that's something that I would encourage, you know, folks listening to think about or what are the ways that you can bestow grace to yourself in the hard moments how can you foster a sense of curiosity and a learning environment so that people can lean into the work rather than feel like they are fearful or paralyzed and lean out of the work, right? And I think that's what we can do as leaders is really set the table for curiosity. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, in a, in a recent episode with David Glasgow, uh, one of the things we talked about was the shame. We talked in depth about the shame and the guilt that can come up, um, and and that could be a barrier to to change, to taking action. And I I've been thinking lately that there are times when I am feeling shame or guilt, and I am what it, what that is. I'm investigating that internally, and I'm realizing it's me beating myself up. 
Oh, it yeah. Is. And, and, and it's me like saying, oh, you did that. And that, that was terrible. And how sh shame on you. Basically, I'm saying <laughs> that to myself. Right. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's, first of all, it's not healthy. It's not, it's not good for you. And, and it doesn't, doesn't um, help change the world. It doesn't create the world that you want to see if you're stuck in that space. And it, that is that sense of giving yourself grace, I think is really essential in doing this. We're in this work that we're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to, from time to time, realize afterwards, ah, I should have done that, or ah, I shouldn't have done that. Right. And it's um, maybe apologizing if it's, if it's, if it's something where you were doing harm and then giving yourself grace and, and just allowing yourself to be and learn and grow um, in the yeah. process. Yeah. I think you know, uh, one of the visualizations that I do is um, I kind of imagine myself as a, a kitchen colander, uh, like a sieve. Um, and it's kind of a funny visual, but it doesn't really help us to hold on to things. It gets real sticky uh -huh. when we hold on to too much, right? Too uh -huh. much guilt, too much shame, too much I wish I could have. And so I think of myself as a kitchen colander. For folks who are wondering what the heck I'm talking about, it's the thing that you might put your vegetables or fruit in and put it under some water and then the water drains out and all that's left is your, you know, freshly clean, you know, fruit and vegetables. And if we can imagine ourselves in this way, then we allow things to come to us and pass through us. And I think that's really important because every day we're called to action. We're called to think about change. We're potentially going to receive emotions. We're going to be in a place of, um, I sit in a seat of privilege and leadership. I might have to, to, to support um, some very quick problem solving. And the lighter I can be, the more I can do. And I think that that is really important. And I'll say that oftentimes when we beat ourselves up around this work or not this work, you know, one of the things that was gifted to me was oftentimes that voice it's not your voice, this but it was the voice of someone who said that to you. And that was a mental unlock for me because when that voice comes up, uh, I don't listen to it. It's kind of like the imposter voice, you know, don't, in, don't invest and believe in your imposter voice. I would equally say, you know, to not listen to the voice that is the one that's being hard on yourself. And so I think that there is a, an, a really beautiful place to open up to of when you start to, when people start to shift into that, that monologue or, or the dialogue between you and this voice is to just say, you know, I got this. I love myself and I'm going to, you know, go for, go forth and figure it out. And I think that that's, there are these little keys that we can, we can give each other. And, and I, I think I might've mentioned this to you over coffee at some point, but you know, this idea of, you know, true power for me is not keeping all these keys to myself, all these things that I've figured out, but it's when I find them, I kind of give them away, right? And that could be like when I'm navigating an organization and I hit a wall or someone gives me some critical feedback, I then internalize it and then I pass that note on to somebody else, right? Uh, and I think that that's a really important part of, you know, someone comes to you with something tough. Don't be tough on yourself, but take the lesson and pass the lesson on, right? And make, yeah. make something easier for somebody else, I think is a really, really important part of building equity in an organization, because then it's not just you changing the org, right? Or the company, 
that's important, but it's not the only piece. What's greater is to go back to that community of practice and let them know the lesson and let them know the note. And then you have hundreds of people changing the or changing the culture, right? That's, that's good stuff. That's power. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I love that. Um, well, we're, we're winding down, unfortunately, even though you and I could talk for hours about this. Um, (laughs) One thing I, I, I do like to ask at the end, because this is about learning and taking action, right? The show, the work we do is about a constant process of learning and taking action. And, and so what action would you like people to take once they listen or watch this episode, listen to or watch this episode? I love this. I feel like, you know, you just gave me the genie lamp and I'm like rubbing it well, to figure out what it is my, my wish What's the gift? Yeah. What's, yeah. I would love for your audience to hit me up on social. Could be LinkedIn, could be Twitter. It's not Instagram because my Instagram is private. And let me know what piece of your power or privilege that you gave away that impacted change in an organization. What did you teach someone that made your organization better? How did you act selfish, selflessly so that change could accelerate? I would love to know that uh, um, from folks. And what wish would I have? I would love for folks to go back to their companies, to their organizations, to their teams, and to actively listen. Active listening is a little bit different than regular listening. And when you're sitting there and you're listening, you're not trying to make the next point. You don't even have to, you know, go um, to try and, you know, kind of perform that you're listening. You're suspending judgment and you're just being present with what is. And I think if... Everyone here went back and actively listened to their leaders, to folks who are, you know, historically marginalized and underrepresented. We would be able to create more inclusive cultures, more inclusive strategies, more inclusive plans that I think are more representative of the connective tissue that really creates a resilient organization and a more cohesive organization, one that is truly representative of all ideas. And I would say, you know, once once you've listened, get curious. Curiosity is a beautiful sign of self-respect and respect for others. And, you know, get curious and have fun. That would be my wish. I think ultimately this work is heavy. And like I said, it's controversial. It's a discipline. That's a journey. But also remember to laugh. And that's something that my boss there, our CHRO, Jackie Welch, uh, really encourages in me, right, is to remember to smile through this work. And um, she is such an incredible role model, as is um, my former boss, Lauren Lopez. So make sure to have fun and smile too, right? I love it. I love it. It, it, um, One of the things that I worked on last year and is always a continuous work of progress is having joy in all of this, finding joy. Yeah, absolutely. 
I love that. Where can people learn more about you and your work? Yeah, thanks for asking. So I'm relatively active on Twitter. You know, fits and starts over there. But I would say you could get to know me and my perspectives and be in touch on LinkedIn. And I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. I check it probably five times a day. So I'm, you know, most accessible there. And you can also reach out to me, you know, through there, through my email, which I'm happy to provide in the, in the comments or caption section um, if folks would like to, to shoot me a note. But I'll just say, Melinda is one of my favorite change makers. And to be invited onto this show to, you know, really stand behind her vision, your vision, is something that is, is always an honor to do. So I oh. just really thank Melinda for making this space and for helping to lead the change across many industries and many organizations. And, you know, mad love, because you've been doing this for so long. You know, you're still here. And I love that we get to, you know, you know, over a decade later, you know, still get to learn from one another. I love it. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I appreciate you and your mentorship and friendship over the years and all the work that you do. My privilege. This is our last episode of the season. We'll be taking a little break before moving on to our next season. And you won't want to miss our next episode. Right now, our team is working hard on something new. I'm really excited about it. And I can't wait to tell you, but I can't tell you yet. So please tune in to our next episode where we'll share a big announcement. And until then, watch or listen to episodes you may have missed. And please buy my book, How to Be an Ally, if you haven't already. If you have already purchased my book, leave a review. Just click on the stars on Amazon or another seller and write a few words about what you learned or how it helped. That makes a difference for me. So I thank you for your allyship in buying my book, reviewing it, and of course, putting into practice what you've learned. Until next time, thank you all for being here and taking action, and we'll see you soon. We'll share resources and a transcript from this discussion at ally.cc. And please make sure to subscribe to our channel and rate this show. It makes a difference for us. Thank you for being part of our community. And remember, the more we take action, the more we grow as humans and as leaders, and the more we transform our communities. So what action will you take today? Let us know your actions by emailing podcast at changecatalyst.co or reaching out on social media. And Leading with Empathy and Allyship is a show by Change Catalyst where we build inclusive innovation through training, consulting, and events. You can learn more about us at changecatalyst.co. So let's keep building allyship across our communities and around the world. Thank you for listening.